This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance Plus, save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hey, stackers. No music. No nothing. Just me. Because just before we press play on today's episode, I completely forgot two things. Number one, our course closes today at midnight. So if you want in to making money easy, uh, you need help with your budget, understanding how your money works for you instead of you doing everything for your money and for everybody else. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash easy for more. We've had a Facebook Live. You can go back and watch that on our Facebook page. We've also, of course, last Friday had Belinda and I talking about how the course works. So check those out and uh, please join us. But the doors close tomorrow for a lot of reasons that we've talked about previously. Um, and you'll find those answers. But, and I'm making that short because the big thing is we are coming to New York City on Tuesday. And we will tell you about this again on Monday, but Seattle was our sixth, is our sixth biggest market, I think. We got 40 people out in New York. So just saying, New York is our number one market when we look at the number of friends that we have there. So I'm hoping we get a nice number of people joining us Tuesday. And I heard, by the way, Tuesday's a huge party night in New York. So, you know, that helps too. Uh, doors open at six o'clock. We're at a place called The Financial Gym. You can either Google that or uh, if you get the stacker, we'll have the address for you. But to come join OG and I and our good friend Bobby Rebel from Money with Friends, uh, doors open at six o'clock. We're going to do a little presentation at 630 and talk a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes making the show. Uh, we can answer a few uh, questions, money questions, and people have those. But generally, we're going to keep it light, get to know some of the Stacker family since it's weird being outside the basement. Uh, to tell us that you're coming, and please tell us that you're coming, head to 
stackingbenjamins.com forward slash NYC, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash NYC. Hopefully we see a lot of you on Tuesday. Get up a bunch of fun. I've got all of these books that people send me to prepare for interviews. Uh, So I'm going to have a nice stack of uh, financial books to give away from past guests. And uh, I know Bobby's bringing some money with friends swag. I think we're going to have some good, good time. We'll bring some of, we'll get some t-shirt coats from Gertrude. I don't know. It's going to be a blast. All right. That's it. Man, what a controversial thing happened on Twitter last week. Luckily, we got some great people to talk about it. So here we go. On with the show. Is this your place? No. No, 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 no. No, I live with my mom. Oh. Yeah. You hungry? Hey, Ma! Can we get some meatloaf? Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and cheers, because today we're having that conversation you had during the holiday family gatherings after everyone's been together just a little bit too long, and you're all starting to get on each other's last nerve. Well, a top financial writer wrote some pretty controversial things about the early retirement movement this week. What do we think about it? Oh, we're going to tell you what we think about it. Let's stir this pot with the fiery millennial herself, Gwen Mers. Plus, from the award-winning What's Up Next podcast, Doc G. And from LenPenzo.com, it's Sam Adams. Oh, oh wait, wait, wait. He's, he's busy helping hydrate this operation. My bad. It's just Len Penzo, who's probably on his second foamy beverage already. That's not all, of course. We'll magnify someone's money and save time for my incredible trivia. And now, that guy that sometimes drinks a foamy beverage or two and eats coleslaw late into the night, Joe Saul Sihai. That is a long story new listeners that we don't have time to get into. And Doug, that's not funny. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Stacky Benjamin Show. I am Joe Saul High, Average Show Money on Twitter. And we have a motley crew with us today. And not the rock and roll band, but a seriously motley crew with us. We're going to start off with the man deep underneath Los Angeles in his bunker, ready for the apocalypse. It's Mr. Len Penzo. You know, speaking of movements, today is going to be a special one because did you know what today is? Today is National uh, Beer Day. Or so, no, it's you're close. It's National Hot Pastrami Day. So, but what goes good with beer, Len? Hot pastrami. Absolutely, yes. So, of course, that again. Day. Good day. Then again, what doesn't go good with beer? I ask you. I was going to say chocolate, but you know what? The other day I was having some beer and chocolate and it actually went very well. <laughs> they had so. the, here to weigh in on which one is better, beer or chocolate or them together. From Chicago, Illinois, from the What's Up Next podcast is our friend Doc G. Beer and chocolate? Beer and chocolate, but not when you're driving. That's very responsible of you, Doc. Incredibly responsible. Uh, I would definitely hold the chocolate if you're going to drive. <laughs> And the person you probably have to hold the chocolate for or just drive because she has no idea what time zone she's in right now. 
from Fiery Millennial. Easy for me to say. It's Gwen Mertz. How many times have I been on the show and you can't even say my last name correctly either? Come on, man. What is it, Mertz? together. Smurz, M-E-R-Z. M-E-R-Z. I want to put a T in there. Let me put a T in there. Let me do my thing. You show up for this podcast recording whenever you want. I'm putting a T in your name. Fair. (laughs) Also, uh, I would like chocolate. No beer. Thank you. Ah, all right. Well, tell everybody what's going on in Fiery Millennial because your old fire drill fans, I'm sure, are happy to hear your voice again over the airwaves. I miss podcasting. Uh, We had a great community. Uh, Still do, but uh, I'm just no longer that part of it. I moved back to the Midwest and am loving life here in beautiful, bucolic St. Louis, the East Coast wasn't for me, so now I'm back and living life and loving it. Back in the middle of the country. Midwest is best. Where where Gwen Mertz belongs. See how I did that again? <laughs> I just twitched. It's fine. <laughs> That's perfect. That's what we look for from you. Uh, by the way, Doc, I forgot to ask you, what's going on at the What's Up Next podcast, man? So it's been a busy few weeks on the What's Up Next podcast. As you know, we announced that the What's Up Next podcast is now part of the Stacking Benjamins family. So we are just bringing up that quality of the podcast to live up to all the basementers who hopefully now are taking a listen. I thought you were about to say you're bringing up the quality of this organization. That's where I was. (laughs) And Len and I were like, oh, thank God somebody's here. I, I was thinking that. I just didn't say it. Yes. Well... We have a great show today. You know what we've got? We have some pot stirring going on on Twitter that I wanted to talk about. We had a different topic, but this is one that is uh, incredibly interesting. We're going to talk about this thing, the early retirement. A lot of people call it the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early. And uh, I believe, Gwen, fiery millennials might have something to do with FIRE. How did you guess? (laughs) It's either that or you need to roll around in the grass a little. Well, who's to say I didn't do that earlier? It could be both. Uh, yeah. Yes. It does have to do with the fire movement, especially when I started out as a uh, wide-eyed and totally naive and innocent 23-year-old. <laughs> and this is a very interesting tweet, my friend. Yeah, we're going to dive into that with Gwen, Doc, and Len. Let's get the party started. All right. Usually we have somebody read the piece to us right here, but I think I can do the honors myself because it's not that long. This is There's small words in there. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's also not that difficult, right? It's at a third grade level, Gwen, so I'm good. Uh, the, execu- <laughs> the executive editor at Bloomberg, Tracy Alloway, kicked this whole discussion off with this tweet. She asked, one thing I've often wondered, does the financial independence retire early movement hashtag fire movement, survive the eventual end of the current bull market. The idea of pouring all your money into VTSAX, which by the way, for people who don't know what that is, that's the Vanguard Total Market Index Fund, one specific mutual fund, and living off it for the rest of your life feels like such a bull market thing. She says, so once again, that last sentence, the idea of pouring all your money into VTSAX and living off it for the rest of your life feels like such a bull market thing. That seemed like a shot across the bow from somebody at Bloomberg, the executive editor at Bloomberg. But then another huge name in personal finance, guy we got to get on the show, by the way, Jason Zwieg from uh, the Wall Street Journal has an excellent column there. Jason wrote this. He says, no. 
because the fintech companies paying thousands of dollars a month and poorly disclosed affiliate marketing fees to all those, quote, independent fire bloggers will run out of VC cash in a bear market. And that was like throwing a Molotov cocktail right in the middle of a crowded room and uh, everybody took sides and started throwing stuff back. So, Len, you're on top of retirement coming up here in April. I'm going to start with you, my friend. When when you read this, what was your, what was your first thought? My first thought was duck and get out of the way <laughs> and let everybody else do the uh, firebombing each other. Up. But uh, look, I'm I'm a I'm an old guy. I'm you know fire isn't really fair for me because I'm. You know, I have less less years to deal with now. So and I've been saving for a long, long time. So I guess I can say I don't you know, I'm not going to make a judgment here. But how old are you? Seriously, how old are you? I will be 56 when you on your birthday, right? We're our what's our birthdays a day apart, Joe? Yeah, in February. Yep. Yes, right. So I'll be 56. But for the average American, 56 is early retirement. I mean, that is is a very early retirement, Len. Yeah. And when I'm, you know, and I've been looking at the numbers and I'll be honest, I'm looking at the numbers. I'm saying, well, gosh, 30 years from 56 is 86. In theory, I could make it beyond 86. And will my, you know, will my, what I've got saved last that long? And I'm thinking at this point, I'm saying, yes, it will. But it's, you know, I can't imagine somebody who's 35 or 40 or, or, or 45 retiring early you know, on the small amount of money I, that they can amass, you know, relatively small, I would think. I, I don't know how they do it. I mean, I admire them, but boy, that's scary. Look at all the years they have to live, right? Joe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. And I want to get into that here in a second. But Gwen, is it very interesting that Len is 56 years old and has kept his math skills? He can still do 56 plus 30? <laughs> it is. His uh, executive reasoning skills are Still sharp. No depreciation in any of Thanks. that. Uh, Thanks, Gwen. No degeneration. Doc is a doctor. Uh, you have to concur, I would think. I concur. Uh, Gwen, you read this. And when you read this at first, did you think, like Len, get out of the way? No, my first thought was, who hurt him? Why? Oh, he seems to like have a major chip on his shoulder. Like, dang, poorly disclosed affiliate marketing fees. Like, that's harsh. Okay, let's get into that first, because, uh, Doc, you and I were talking earlier. Well, before we get into that, let's talk about what you and I were talking about earlier, Doc. You said, to credit the source, there's like 15 things he's saying here. Yeah, not just him and Tracy, too. So, like, I think you've got to break it down. There are like three or four major issues here. Like, the first and most easiest one is, you know, she says the idea of pouring all your money into VTSAX and living it off for the rest of your life feels like such a bull market thing. Well, VTSAX, you know, it approximates the U.S. market in general. So if we're talking about investments, I'd be pretty happy over the next three decades getting market returns. Like that would probably put me ahead of 80% of people who invest. So she makes a big deal about a VTSAX, but it's a mutual fund that pretty much has a little piece of the whole market in it. And if you're going to look to get market returns for the next 30 years, that's not a bad way to go. But if you look at what she says, you almost get the feeling that she thinks that the financial independence people only believe that they need equities and only VTSAX and nothing else. But, you know, Mr. VTSAX, J.L. Collins, 
also advocates for bond holdings. In our recent episode with him on the What's Up Next podcast, he also talked about moving towards international in the future. And that's just talking about equities. I mean, a lot of people also, you know, you wouldn't have a one-legged stool with just equities, right? So you'd have some bonds, you might have some REITs, you might have some actual hard real estate assets, you might have a side hustle, you might still even have a W-2. So, you know, this whole idea that someone's going to put all their money in VTX and take it out the minute the market goes down is spurious. And so putting your money in VTSAX is fine. And I think if you have a long-term plan to leave it there, that's a very reasonable way to allocate some of your equities. You'd be silly not to allocate your money in other paper assets or in other physical assets also. Uh, but I think that would be reasonable. And well, I think you'd get reasonable returns. Let's, let's go through a few things here. And by the way, because of the role that I'm playing, I'm going to sound like the biggest pain in the ass on this on this podcast because I'm going to be asking a bunch of a bunch of critical questions that frankly I don't know the answer to, but I think they're questions that come up with all these things. Number one is JL Collins on the movie Playing with Fire, uh, Scott Rickens movie. He's been on the show a couple times. He looks Scott and Taylor, his spouse, in the eye and says, "Take all your money and put it in one fund, VTSAX." And my question back then is this, I don't hear anybody else say that. I hear J.L. Collins say it. I haven't heard the certified financial planner community echo it. I haven't heard other voices that have degrees echo that sentiment. And yet the fire movement has picked up on this one guy's big thing. Why is it that we haven't had other responsible voices? And don't don't take that the wrong way. I think J.L. Collins is a pretty damned responsible guy. But why haven't other responsible voices picked up on that? Gwen? Well, come on, let's face it. Who sounds like J.L. Collins? It's the voice. <laughs> That's, it. That's it. There's nobody at Fidelity that has that voice. Or is it just that the big Wall Street players don't want you investing in a single fund? Well, they're also doing more poorly than if they had just put their money in VTSAX 20 years ago. So, but, but poorly problem- based on, but poorly based on what? Because an, an individual, as a guy that was a financial planner for a number of years, I actually take exception to that, Doc. And the reason I do is because my goal doesn't have anything to do with VTSAX or the market. So I specifically design portfolios for my clients that would ride bull and bear waves and would get its butt kicked during the upturn we've had lately, but also isn't going to get its ass whooped like VTSAX is going to when the market takes a downturn. I also think that you're planning for people who are not probably in the FIRE movement too. So for financial independence, you have people who are looking at a very, very long time period, right? So you're looking at people who are investing in their 30s and 40s, and want that money to last into their 70s or 80s. So if you know you're going to put your money in and you know that a large majority of it is going to stay in, if you're only taking out what you need to live off of, the idea is you want to meet and match the market. And so maybe not for all the people you do financial planning for, but for the slice of people that he speaks to, it's a reasonable part of the puzzle. So it's not the whole puzzle. And you can argue with him whether it's the whole puzzle or not. But if you actually look at all of his writings, you'll see that he does talk about bond allocations. He sure. talks about international investing. And also, 
he owns rental real estate, right? So Caban, of the place he lives at, he Airbnbs it. So, and he has side hustles, right? He sells a book and he's been very open about these things. So I think if you look at it as a whole, when you're talking about equities for a young person who's looking at investing for a very long-term future, VTSAX as your main equity holding is a reasonable option and probably will at least when it comes to total returns, do as well, if not better than 80 to 90% of other allocations. Now, as you were saying, people have different needs. So maybe volatility is a big issue for people and they will not feel comfortable during a down market. So those people might need some stability to VTSAX. So they might need a bigger bond holding or they might need rental real estate or they might want to have a bigger cash reserve or Len, they might want to have gold, (laughs) right? So, But think about it this way. JL's message to everybody is keep it simple. So this is literally the simplest path to wealth you can take. Put it all in VTSAX, let it sit for four decades and don't worry about it. So I think this applies to like a very narrow subset of people, like you said. And once you get past that beginning, like I'm investing in the stock market mindset, then you can say, okay, well, maybe now I need to have a little bit of rental real estate or now I need a REIT or now I need some bonds, you know, but it's a great starting place. And that's how I use his advice is is a great place to start from and build wealth and then go from there. Len, imagine that you own one single fund. It's all invested in stocks. It's the total stock market and the stock market begins falling. Mm-hmm. What do you think the people around you at your job are going to do with that fund? I don't know what other people are going to do. I know what they're being told. Just hold on to it and everything will be fine. And you'll, you know, over the long haul, things come back instead of maybe cutting their losses and selling. That's what they'll probably a lot of them will do. The danger is they'll, you don't know how long this bull market is. Boy, this is scary because I don't, I don't really follow this fire thing. And I'm hearing some things about this single index and hold it for 40 years. That sounds great, but let's look at this. I hear people say this all the time. Well, the market over 120 years has returned 10%. And that's true. But what most people don't understand is there's two types of returns. There's compounded returns and there's average returns. Average returns take into account the losses that you're talking about, Joe. And the problem is over 120 years, we don't have a 120-year lifespan to invest. And so therefore, depending on where we are in that when, when the markets make their downturn, you have to make up the losses. So let's say, just a real simple example, you get three straight years of 10% returns. The next year, you get a 10% loss. You have to get 30% to make up what you just lost in that third year. So therefore, you're not getting this nice steady 10% compounding on 10%, compounding on 10%. So it's not as simple as everybody thinks. Even 40 years to me, It's a dangerous game just to say, hold on to it, because you don't know how long a bear market could last. If a bear market lasts 10 years and you're holding on, you are screwed. You're screwed if you're in a single index. I forgot that I called on the one guy in this panel who's going to tell me to bury it in the backyard, 
because I, because I, <laughs> wait a minute. Well, what's wrong with what I said? No, 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 no. Well, I do think that over the long term, if the economy is going to continue, the stock market has to. And that's a long term thing. So on that end, I agree with JL Collins. I can see, Len, why you don't. And I also think you bring up another risk, which is sequence of returns, number one. And number two, that your goals have finite end dates. And depending on when you need to pull the money, that 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 you could blow yourself up with that strategy uh, by not knowing the end date. The other thing is that I frankly myself am worried about is I worked with the public for 16 years before I moved over to the financial media side. I've met a lot of people. Most people, I don't think the problem here is J.L. Collins. I think most people are going to blow their own shit up. They're going to blow it up and they're yes. going to blow it up bad. Yes. So the problem isn't J.L. Collins. The problem is the people hearing this don't have the background. I don't know if it's background or fortitude or the experience. It's going to be their first time in battle. And I actually think on my end, that's what Tracy is, is getting at here, Doc. Yeah, totally. And and Jay will say the same thing. I mean, in our interview, he kind of mentioned he's like, look, if you haven't been through a down market, you don't know what it's like. And it's one thing if in hindsight, you can say the market lost 50 percent and then gained it back. But when you're in the midst of the 50 percent loss and everyone's saying it's going to go down another 50 percent, it's really hard behaviorally to stick with it. That's a very valid argument, and I think Tracy's argument actually is a good one. I don't agree with her on VTSX 100%, but I do agree with her that the financial independence movement will take a big hit during the next uh, down market. There are plenty of people who cut corners. There are plenty of people who didn't asset allocate in a way that they'd really be comfortable with. There are plenty of people who just have never been through a bad bear market, and so I don't see the financial independence retirement early movement growing during a bear market. I see it contracting. I don't think it'll go away. I just see it contract. We're going to cover that next, but I want to I want to ask you, Gwen. I'm sure you saw this, but you're the one non-old guy on this on this podcast. <laughs> so, you haven't been through a down market yet. VTSAX for you, centerpiece of your investing portfolio? Something similar. I have index funds in general as the overall benchmark of my portfolio, but not VTA, SAX specifically. But you're a little more diversified then. Yeah. So I have a small number of bonds. I have uh, some REITs. And then I have like uh, my main 401k is with Fidelity. So I have Fidelity's version of whatever the index fund is. Similar thing. Yeah. Let's move on to Jason's stuff then. We kind of covered Tracy's a little bit. We're not going to solve all the problems here in one 25-minute segment. But Jason takes this on a right turn and says, the fintech companies paying $1,000 a month and poorly disclosed affiliate marketing fees to all those independent, quote, independent fire bloggers who run out of VC cash in a bear market. I think when sticking with you, what he seems to be referring to is a lot of bloggers talking a great game about independent, still earning a very kick-ass living off of somebody else's money. True or false? I think that he thinks that's true. I think that the perception is there, but I know many bloggers in the fire world and I can say very specifically that that is not the case. Yes, there are people that earn some money off of it, but either they donate all of their money or they deliberately don't include advertising on there at all. I mean, you could look at me as a successful fire blogger and people think that I make money, but in the long run, over the five years that I've been blogging, I have lost a lot of money 
by blogging. And I think that's the case for most of the bloggers out there. And it's easy to be swayed by the three or four guys out there earning $100,000 a month in advertising income and then forget about all the small blogs out there who just want to share their story. But if you lose, Len, those big uh, voices, it seems like that would make it tougher for the movement, don't you think? I mean, I'm thinking about you and I at early FinCon, some of the people that attended those uh, FinCons that aren't blogging anymore, you know, losing those voices, you feel it for a while. Yeah, I, I think it would take a hit. Only time will tell. This is all hypothetical until we see a bear market, what's going to happen. I, you know, I tend to agree with Jason. You know, I, I think the bear market comes. I think this is it's going to cool down a bit just because reality is going to hit. But we'll have to wait and see. And there are also several people who've been financially independent for decades and decades who've been through bear markets. Now, granted, sure. they're not tons of them. But for instance, Doug Nordman is a perfect example of a guy who has gone through two bear markets. He donates almost all his money. He has written very openly and clearly about it. Uh, and there are other voices like him who've been through this and have said, I've used the basic math. Uh, they followed the major financial independence credos and shown how at least for them it's worked. So there are definitely people who've been doing this for decades. On a personal note, you know, my step-grandfather retired at 49 from being a dentist and he never worked again his wife never worked and he he did like all the financial dependent stuff but he did it in like the 1960s so he geo-arbitraged to santa fe at that time because santa fe was not what it is today and he turned the heat on to 60 degrees and he invested consistently and he you know, was frugal. And he he did all of the things these fire bloggers are talking about now. So there are people who've done this and have survived. Is it reproducible? I think it is. Uh, some people don't. I think it's a matter of opinion and maybe only time will tell. But you also have to think of all those people out there who aren't bloggers who are on the path to financial independence, who are retired. And I've met many of them. And you know what? Some of them are so busy doing hobbies and things that they enjoy volunteering that they can't be bothered to find time to start a blog and write about what they're doing. So I think that the blogger section of the FIRE movement is loud and vocal about what they're doing. But there's it might be just the loud minority. You know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? I I want to I want to look at the other side of this, which is just advertising and 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 blogs in general. Just for a second, I was listening to a podcast that is often affiliated with the fire movement, and there was a real estate firm on there, and they said on the ad, the person read, "This is geared for ten to seventeen percent returns." And the second I heard that as a former guy with a Fortune 100 company, as a spokesperson for American Express, my my ears went up, number one, because I know, damn, you can't say that. But I also know that because this area of the universe is so poorly regulated, you end up with a firm that writes it. The person writing it may or may not know the rule, which, by the way, is not the person reading it. It's not the podcaster reading it. The podcaster reading it isn't a pro in this area and doesn't know that they can't say that. So consequently, you get a podcast with something that I'm not sure if it's illegal or not, but if it were with a regulated company, it wouldn't make the cut. There's no compliance department in America that would let that through. That stuff is bothersome to me that some of these companies 
seem to be preying on the fact that these are people, you know, Gwen's a great example. Somebody who is super excited about the concept of early retirement. Well, not so much that, Gwen, I think, and not to put words into your mouth, as much as financial independence, right? Excited about financial independence at a young age. So excited about it that you decide to be a voice in the community. Some company approaches you, knows that you're not a pro in this area. You're you're an enthusiast more than a pro, I would say. Hands you a script, few bucks. Why not read it? Yeah, exactly. You put all of the best words in my mouth. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Gwen, you agreed with all the things I just said for you. I did. Yeah. Would you like me to mansplain what you're all about? Nope. Nope. You're good. No, I didn't feel like you were mansplaining at all. <laughs> uh, but how often, seriously, Gwen, do you think that happens? That scenario? I think it happens quite a bit. Yeah. I think people, they take a course on Udemy or whatever that is, or, you know, from somebody and they say, learn all about affiliate marketing. And you think that you have everything that you need to know. And then you read this and then somebody says, Hey, you're not allowed to do that. And you had no idea. And then you start looking into it and you quickly start reading all these legalese that's above your pay grade. And then you're like, is this really worth it? Like, I didn't know I couldn't say that. I didn't know that that was the rule. And then you have to either, you know, issue a public proclamation that, oh, I'm sorry that we said that, you know, we won't do it again. We learned our lesson or you get sued for lots of money and you are screwed. Yeah, that makes it hard, Doc, because, you know, you're reading something that you maybe don't know enough about. I mean, I feel like Jason in that area is saying the same thing Tracy's saying. There's a piece of this that just seems too easy. Yeah, certainly it's your blog or podcast. You're responsible for what you put out there. And if you are not comfortable with it, you shouldn't be putting it out there. And there is, you know, a whiff test to some of this. So, you know, when the returns get really high or the math doesn't work, it's up to each of us to decide that we are not going to put that out with our content. But it is a wild, wild west. Uh, We are not really regulated in what we say. And this goes for fire blogs or blogs in general, we don't necessarily have to be truthful and we can say things that aren't necessarily backed up by science. And it really depends on the personal ethic of the person doing it. And I think it's one of the risks of what the internet is right now. There is no question in my mind, though, what Jason says is true. As the money dries up and the market dies, all these advertising dollars are going to die too. So if any of these fire bloggers are relying on that money, for the retirement, quote unquote, retirement plan, they're going to be in trouble. The idea with hopefully most of these is that early retirement came before they started making all this money and making all this money was what came of their passion, or at least that's what, you know, that's what the script is. But I have no doubt that advertising money will come and go based on what the economy does. Hey, Joe, I I want to bring up another thing, a risk that I see. Obviously, the younger you are when you retire, the, the bigger the risk. Here's something else that I don't know if people are thinking about this. You do your early retirement and let's say let's say you're an engineer and you're seven or eight years down the road and you're part of this movement now and you're financially independent. The market turns and uh, you find out you're not you're going to outlive by a long shot what you had saved and you have to get back in the workforce. It's like, you know, job skills could uh, wither and you might find it very difficult to get back in your profession. 
you know, if it's a long enough uh, time frame. So that's another thing that really is, boy, you really got to think about, I would think. Anyway, yeah. I know I would. <laughs> I can I can echo that because as a physician, like if I stop working, once I stop paying for malpractice insurance, after two years of not having malpractice insurance, I am not insurable. Well, wow. and for people like me, I took nine months off of work last year and tried to make this influencer, blogger, podcaster thing work full time. And it did not work out in the slightest because this is way more difficult than it actually looks like rather than just throwing up some ads on your your blog. There's a lot of work that goes into it behind the scenes. I tried to get back into the W-2 workforce and it took me a lot longer than I thought. And had my skills been current and had I not forgotten some of the things that I knew and knew how to do for my job and had to relearn um, – it would have been way easier for me to find a job. Um, you know, they say that the best time to find a job is when you already have one. You know, if you have to go back to work, you might find yourself starting several rungs down the ladder. You might find yourself in less than ideal work situations. So it's a definite risk, Len, for sure. Yeah. Why does the fire movement get so much heat? I feel like this is no not pun intended. <laughs> that's, that's, I am way too dumb to intend that pun, by the way. I'm like, oh, I did that. That's fantastic. But why does it? Because it seems like this is not the first time this has come up. Doesn't seem like it's the last time it's going to come up. I feel like there's there's always this heat. Is it just people throwing stank or is it... Uh, is it jealousy? Is it uh, seen as exclusionary by people? Because you see that. I mean, what what do you think it is? It's well, counterculture. Yeah. yeah, so it's counterculture. But also, if you're struggling from a millennial's perspective, if you're struggling just to pay your rent and put food on the table and you know cover your car payment or something, it can seem impossible. And you get resentful of how easy it is for somebody to save so much money in a month when you're just struggling to get by. I would buy that if the resentment was coming from those people. I I see a little bit of that, you know, but what I largely see is no CFPs involved. Um, I see uh, a very white community involved. I see a lot of the established financial media like uh, Helene Olin and Jason Zweig and uh, Tracy Alloway throwing up these questions like these established professionals. When you ask the big asset firms about the fire movement, it's kind of a smile and nod. And yeah, we love the aspiration of this, but you don't see any books about how to do it coming from coming from any of these companies. What do you think, Doc? Yeah, I want to push back on that a little bit. I know plenty of CFPs who are in the fire movement. I've interviewed them on our podcast. They're definitely out there. So that's point one. Point two, you know, there are a lot of people pushing back on it who make a lot of money on people who are not financial independence practitioners, right? So CFPs make money on people who need help with their finances. Fire practitioners tend to say, do it on your own. And if you do do it, make less money, which means if you're their certified financial planner, you might make less money because they have less income and less to invest. So there are a lot of people out there who benefit from typical American economic behavior, right? Spending lots of money, paying for advice. Those are things that benefit a lot of our country. And I'd also push back on this idea that it's mostly you know, Caucasian people, I know a lot, a lot of 
non-Caucasian people in this movement. And I would say that it's a lot broader of a movement than most of us think. I know certainly having my own podcast has opened up my eyes because there are all these communities within the financial independence community of people who are not just your typical Caucasian male, but I didn't really learn about them until I went searching. But there are a lot of people in this movement. I love you guys taking my questions and and <laughs> just I wrote all this stuff just trying to stir some pot. You're pissing me off. Everybody has- We're having an actual nuanced conversation that takes into a lot, a lot of different perspectives. I'm, I'm like the guy trying to throw the grenade at Thanksgiving dinner among the family members to see them start fighting, and it just didn't happen. So anyway, it's it's interesting. I think it almost isn't fair to call it a movement. You know, I mean, when I when I really think instead of me playing devil's advocate like I have been the past fifteen minutes. Me thinking about it, I don't think it's really fair to call it a movement. And and I kind of don't like, I, I think some of the stank is about calling it a movement. I think it's doing the same thing people want to do for a long time, which is do the stuff that they love to do and less of what they don't love to do. And I don't know if that means that calling it a movement makes some people feel excluded. I don't know if, uh, I don't know what, I don't know what it is, but it's, but it's interesting. Um, and we certainly... We weren't going to solve it today. Uh, speaking of that, Len, your big takeaway from all this, because because uh, you're you're the guy like me. Um, <laughs> well, you know, good luck if you're going to do it. You know, God bless you, and I wish you all the luck, all all the fire people. You know, this is one area where being older kind of has an advantage over being younger because it's easier to retire when you're older, uh, assuming you've saved the money because you don't have as many years you have to worry about down the road. Whereas if you're younger, I'm telling you, you live a long time in 40 years, 50 years, a lot of things can happen. And that's just, it's, there's more uncertainty and that's all, you know, who, who knows how everything's going to turn out, but I don't know. I live in a bunker and I, and I, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so doc, your big takeaway. So my takeaway, I'm going to quote Carl Jensen on this from Mr. 1500. He kind of said when we had a conversation about this, it's true. You know, if you go after financial independence, retire early, you might run out of money. On the other hand, if you don't, you may one day run out of life. So, yes, everything is risky, whether you continue working or don't continue working. If you continue working and you die with lots of money, but you die at 50 because you got lung cancer, maybe that extra 10 or 20 years would have been great. Is that likely? No, but it's out there. I think the financial independence movement is viable. I think it will continue. I think it will take a big hit, probably during a major financial downturn. I think that's okay. And it'll continue to be there. And and I personally don't know if I'd call it a movement either. I think it's more a way of life. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, that Carl, Mr. 1500's quote there, that should be a way of life. That should be a tattoo. Gwen, you think about making that a tattoo? Well, I don't know. I was going to ask you what I thought about this and you know what my final takeaway thought should be. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you first about getting the Carl Jensen tattoo. Do you have a problem with that? If I was going to get a Carl Jensen tattoo, it would be a Spendosaurus. Come on. <laughs> of course. All right. Your take, you have the last word because you're our special guest. Oh, I'm special. All right. That's for sure. I think that there are points to be made, but the way that they went about it is not for to actually have any sort of... Um, discussion on it. I think it's more just for, you know, the the lobbing the Molotov cocktail into Twitter and stir things up and, oh, maybe I'll write a column about it or something along those lines. 
Gwen, when you graduated, did you have student loans? I did not. Doc? None. Man, Len. Uh, no, I paid for my whole way through. <laughs> I had student loans, so maybe I should have asked myself to start that. <laughs> I know there's a few people out there that have student loans, and the founder and CEO of a company called Pillar, Michael Block, is upstairs talking to mom right now. His wife graduated from law school with more than, listen to this guy's $300,000 in student loans. So, uh, ouch. Michael and his co founder, they dug into helping people do a better job of paying off their student loans and finding a solution to student loans. So, here on our Friday FinTech segment, let's say a big hello to Michael Block and learn about his company, Pillar. And here he comes, walking down the stairs to the basement. Have a seat, man. It's Michael Block. How are you? Hey, Joe. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me here. Well, I'm glad you could be here. Any guy that uh, is going to help people with student loans is somebody somebody that we definitely want to talk to. Because I don't know if you've seen this, Michael. There might be an epidemic in this country. I'd say a huge one. There's 45 million people in the United States that have student loans. About seven out of every 10 people that go to college need them in order to pay for it. And it takes people on average about 15 to 20 years to pay those loans back. And so it's just a huge problem that is holding people back from starting families, from getting married, from buying homes. And that's exactly what uh, we started Pillar to, to help solve. I like to hear the origin story about how companies are created. I do know a little bit about yours. Mm -hmm. This is intensely personal for you. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll go back to some ancient history here really quick. But uh, before I started Pillar, I I was an early employee at DoorDash, the food delivery company, uh, where I ran the California and the New York regions for about three years It was an amazing experience there, seeing the company go from 50 to 2,000 people over a three-year time period, but eventually decided to leave to go to business school over at Stanford. And uh, I did that right at the same time when my wife was graduating from law school with $300,000 worth of student loans. I I just want to stop there because this is a question that we get all the time on the show. You get to like a hundred thousand dollars in student loans and you go, Holy, how am I going to, you get to 200,000 and you're thinking, Oh my God, like what is your wife thinking when she gets to $300,000? I I think we were thinking just, we have no idea how we're going to pay this amount of debt back. And, you know, for her each year of law school was literally a hundred thousand dollars is how much it costs to attend a private law school. And so it's something that, you know, she wanted to be a lawyer and it was the right decision for her, but definitely something that just takes years and years for us to pay back. And so as we started doing the research and looking for tools that would help us paying back this 300K of debt, we found that there was really just nothing that could help us on the market. And so started doing research, looking into the space and realized this is something I wanted to help fix. And so ended up dropping out of Stanford to do something about it. Now, that is just a fantastic story. Before we get into Pillar and how it works, though, you having a front row seat on this issue, do you think there needs to be more counseling before kids go to school about student loans and about how they're going to structure it or repayment? Or I mean, I mean, where do you think the crux of this issue lies? There's really two ways to approach this problem. Uh, the first is how do we minimize people taking on student loan debt in the first place? And that could be through counseling, you know, making sure that people that shouldn't be going to college don't feel the need to do that and take out debt for it. 
could be through ISAs or programs like Lambda School, for example. I think there's a whole lot of opportunity that exists on the front end to really stop this problem before it even becomes one. Uh, but for the $1.7 trillion of outstanding student loan debt that already exists, that's exactly where Pillar comes in to figure out how can we help these millions of Americans get out of debt faster than they can today. Yeah, let's dive into the issue. I, I want to kind of quote Jack Welch, the guy that ran GE for a long time. Let's quote the problem that's here and not the problem we wish we had, which is that we which that we wish this didn't happen at all. So tell me about how Pillar works. Let's just walk through it, Michael, exactly what you guys do. It starts off, it's an app. Yeah. So Pillar, we're a personal finance app that helps people get out of student loan debt faster. And it's really simple to use all you do is you go to the app store on either iOS or Android, you download the app, you sign up, then you link your loans and you link your bank accounts, and we'll then analyze your loan information and your income and your spending uh, to determine what is the fastest and best way for you to actually repay all of your student loan debt. And even more importantly than that, Pillar then will automate all of the hard work uh, that you have to do on your own today. So we'll move the money from point A to point B. We'll help you figure out which repayment plan you should be on and help you take care of the paperwork behind that. Really, our goal is to reduce all the time and effort and just overhead that it takes to manage this debt on your own. People are saving using Pillar some serious money. I mean, I've heard some just phenomenal stories and you got to hear them all the time. Yeah. Uh, so we we launched the app uh, back in May, and we've had tens of thousands of people uh, use the app already. We're managing over $250 million worth of student loans. So it's still just a, a drop in the bucket, but a, a good start that we have so far. What about some of the hitches that are out there, like income-based repayment plans or maybe some of these federal loans that maybe shouldn't be shouldn't be moved? Does Pillar alert me to those things? Yeah, so that's where there's a, there's a big alphabet soup of options that exist right. for people in terms of repaying their loans. There's every, standard plans, graduated plans, income-based repayment programs. Yeah, because and as so, you know, because you know, Michael, everybody's afraid to do the wrong thing. You know, I mean, yeah. I'm sure you hear that all the time. I, I, I don't know if I should refinance this or not. I hear exactly. that people screw up by doing it. They screw up by not doing it. So anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly where, you know, a lot of people are just looking for confidence that they're actually doing the right thing in the first place. And so that's exactly what Pillar provides is you could trust us as this, you know, objective, neutral third party that you could ask for advice. And we'll tell you based off your unique financial situation, exactly what we think is best for you to do and then actually help you do that if that's the course of action that you decide to take. How do you guys make money doing this for people? The core pillar product is 100% free, where you could make all of your payments through the app and do everything you would through your student loan servicer through Pillar instead, 100% for free. But in the next few months, we're launching some premium options that people could choose to subscribe to in exchange for a low monthly fee. So we're excited to, to get that out the door in the next few months for people. Now, you know, Michael, nobody listens to the show. It's just you and me here. Can you tell us a little bit about the premium features that people can't get yet? Uh, not just yet, but maybe you could have me on again in a couple months when we launch them. <laughs> deal. Deal. I'll take that. It's not the answer I'm looking for, but I'll, but I'll take it. I was going to ask then what's next, but clearly that's what's next. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, definitely the premium features and getting out those out the door is something our team is focused on right now. We're really just focused on helping more users get out of debt faster. So getting that tens of thousands to the hundreds of thousands and millions of people over the next year or two. 
People worry about data and privacy. I know you guys value that, but can you talk a little bit to that about Pillar and making sure people's data stays private? Yeah, absolutely. So we always make sure that people, uh, all their information is kept as privately and securely as possible, where we take this incredibly seriously, because what matters to us is really having the users trust. And if we don't do that well, then it doesn't exist, right? And so uh, we store everything through other third parties that whose job it is just to make sure that data is always stored securely. Um, and so it's something that we do our best to make sure that we are, you know, industry doing, following industry standards and really doing what's best for the user. It's funny, Michael, sometimes when I interview people, the idea that they're bringing to the marketplace is difficult to describe. And so we end up talking for 15, 20 minutes, even though we try to do it in 10. I just looked at my clock here. We're at eight minutes, but we're done. It's super simple. You, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a fast talker too, I guess. <laughs> well, no, but I'm thinking, oh. I'm thinking really, you have student loans. You're not sure if you're doing it right. You download the Pillar app. You guys tell me if there's an opportunity and then I take advantage of it. (laughs) It's kind of a a no-brainer. And I think that's where we've seen a lot of success over the past few months where once somebody sees the value prop that we offer, there's a very good likelihood that they're going to sign up and, you know, use the app. And we've been blown away by just the retention that we're seeing of people coming back month after month after month to continue to use us as their primary source for, for really managing their, this part of their financial life. And a lot fewer calories involved in DoorDash. So I'm good there too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, available everywhere. I mean, it's, it's Android and uh, Apple. Yes. We're on both iOS and Android, just again, hundred percent for free in the app stores. And you know what? If you're walking your dog or you're on your commute, we got you covered. We'll have the link to the Pillar app and the Pillar website on our show notes page at stackybedjamins.com. Michael, thanks for helping us with our student loans a little bit today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me over. Well, hello there, stackers. It's me, you know, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And I'm back again to help you learn something on this podcast. Today, uh, according to the wacky calendar Joe's mom got me for the holidays, is uh, National Beer Appreciation Day. Wait, 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 wait. I thought that was every other Tuesday. It's not? My bad. Uh, Regardless, here is my famous trivia question for the crew. In what year did the first canned beer in this multi-billion dollar industry go on sale? I'll be back with the answer in just a moment. Well, when Doug heard that Gwen had relocated to St. Louis, we thought that it was time for some beer trivia as well. And being not only that, but uh, National Beer Appreciation Day, we thought we had two holidays there, Gwen on the podcast and National Beer Appreciation Day, that this would be a great question. So the score right now, for those of you keeping track at home, Len has two. Gwen is playing on behalf of Paula. Paula has zero. Doc, today you're playing on behalf of OG. OG also has zero. So uh, you guys got to try to defeat the evil empire, the evil Penzo empire here on on, on today. I've got you, Paula. (laughs) Well, Gwen, as the special guest, you get to decide if you go, if you guess first in the middle or last on this question. I'm going to go first. All right. Gwen is going to go first. Doc, you want to go in the middle or last? Oh, last always. He will go last, which means Len's in the middle. All right, Gwen. 
we've changed the rules this year for people that have missed the last couple of weeks. Instead of closest without going over, now it's just the closest answer. So, what year did the first Cam beer go on sale? Well, this was a bit before my time, but I'm going to guess the summer of 69 because that's when everything else happened. Brian Adams, is that's the year you got your first real six string? Bought it at the you five know and it. dime? Yes. 1969 was first canned beer. Uh, Len? Gwen. Gwen. 1969? <laughs> Listen, I said this is before my time, okay? <laughs> Len was 47 uh, years old in 1969. Oh, my gosh. No, I know it's way before that. I know. Let's see. Um, okay, so here's what I'm thinking. I am pretty sure they had to have perfected pasteurization of canned, I would think. And when was that? That was in the 1800s, wasn't it? Goodness gracious, canned. Wait, are we doing in the U.S. or worldwide? Worldwide. Oh, that's a good. Hey, thanks for that, Gwen. That's really good. Uh, That's why I went first. Canned. This is metal cans, right? Yes. Metal cans. All right. So it's probably tin. I don't think they had aluminum. You know what? I bet you it had something to do with the world wars. You know, they were canning food and rations. So let's say 1917. 1917, to quote a movie that just came out. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Doc, they gave you just a little bit of room. So I I think this pasteurization thing is not true. Wasn't it beer they drank because it wouldn't go bad? I don't know. I agree, though, that, you know, it probably was first in bottles, and I'm thinking 1930s. So I'm going to say 1932. 1932 for Doc. So we would tell you right now, but we don't play that way. We're going to make you wait a second. We'll be right back. What if you two could be balding and own your own podcast production company? Think that would be too good to be true? Well, strap on the wow helmet, kids, because we're about to introduce you to Sacking Benjamins in the Cab. Now, you too can create a moderately successful internet radio show from the comfort and privacy of your own mom's basement. That's right. Stacking Benjamins in the can is the do-it-yourself kit that's creating tons of internet fun. What's included? Well, feast your eyes on this, kids. Open up your Stacking Benjamins in the can and you'll see 14 ways to talk about your latest trip to Bavaria. 18 of the worst bad dad jokes you've ever heard. Your own barely relevant holiday calendar. A sealed container brimming with the smells of stale basement air and day-old pizza. Plus, one script chock full of Segway ideas. And because there was still a little room, we also shoved in your very own Steak Brother story. All in the can. But that's not all. Think we can't do better? Oh, yes, we can. We've also thrown in the can five gratuitous references to OG's after-school activity, three boring tales about how cold it is in Detroit, and if you call in now, tons of free Sizzler coupons. How do you get it? You know that's not the question to ask. Oh, go ahead, ask us. How do I get it in the can? 
Here's the secret to stacking Benjamins in the can. Just head to your mom's basement, buy a microphone, and we'll take care of the rest. Stacking Stacking Benjamins Benjamins in in the the can can couldn't be easier. Still not sold? What if I told you stacking Benjamins in the can is gluten-free? That's right. Healthy, barely funny, and all stuffed into this refillable souvenir container. Call for yours today. Operators are standing by. No animals were harmed in the making of this recording. Gwen, you said 1969, and Len was not at all happy with that. He was not. I think he was slightly offended. I, well, I will tell you this. I was born in 1968, and there's a picture of my dad standing over watching the whole thing with a PBR while I was... No, I'm kidding. That did, that did not happen. <laughs> it's holding it was all downhill from bottle, there. Right? <laughs> right, right. Probably a cigarette in one hand, PBR in the other. Push harder, Dorothy. Free range. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be horrible. Uh, but 1969, Len, you're at 1917. Good movie, by the way. Really? Yeah, very, very high, highly recommended. World War. I'll check it out. Yes. Uh, and then, Doc, 1932, how are you feeling? Eh, maybe. <laughs> well, t- I, I love all your convictions. Uh, <laughs> Doug, what is the answer? Hey there, trivia nerds, and welcome back to my famous trivia reveal. The question was this, in what year did the first canned beer go on sale? If you said way back in 1929, you would just crash and burn, baby. But if you said 1935, you'd be right. Way to go, fellow stackers. Party on, Garth. See ya. I won. I won. I'm sorry, Paula. I let you down. When you said 1930s, Doc, Doug had told me the answer to this one. I'm like, really? Nice, nice I, work. I definitely Googled it after I gave my answer. <laughs> that is good. I th- you and definitely. Did they say what brand it was? What brand was it? Uh, Kruger's Finest Beer and Kruger's Cream Ale. First one on sale in Richmond, Virginia. January 24th, that? 1935. Speaking of fire, Richmond, Virginia, home of the our friends over at the Choose FI podcast fire reference you think that either brad or jonathan's family involved in that probably not given that uh neither of them are from there yeah, the transplants i think no let's let's do something else that's how that's what jason's Weagle right next is that with all <laughs> their beer money these fire guys from choose <laughs> fi making it making it happen Hey, let's uh, take out the magnifying glass, guys, and help somebody do better with their money. Today's hotline call comes to you courtesy of magnifymoney.com. You know what happens, Gwen, when you head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash money? You get voicemails. You can leave voicemails. <laughs> you can. Well, you actually, not when you go to that site. When you go to that site, you find out that most of those products you use at brick and mortar banks not that good. Over 92% of the products out there online all ranked at magnifymoney.com. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnifymoney for more. By the way, it was funny. I was just checking um I was just checking uh CD rates, Len. And you know how we've been saying the last couple of years that this idea of laddering CDs that you and I have talked about in the past, not that great, but uh-huh. that's that's coming around. That's becoming a decent uh, strategy again. Did you just check what was the latest rate? One-year CD in the two-and-a-quarter range. Okay, very good. Yeah. 
Isn't that sad though that it is two and a quarter? And you're like, wow, that's great. That's great. Right? <laughs> I mean, my goodness. I mean, just how that's terrible. Lock into that, man. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Where mostly high interest savings accounts have gone below two. So CDs making a, a recurrence. It's funny how these strategies change over time. You go, yeah, CDs, not so much. And now we're like, oh, looking, yeah. looking good again, CDs. Today, we're going to help anonymous do better with their money. Hey, Joe and OG. My question is about an inherited Roth IRA. A family member has told me that they plan to leave me a Roth IRA specifically so that I won't have to pay taxes or take required minimum distributions. My understanding was that even though the original owner didn't have to take RMDs, the beneficiary does. Can you clarify? If it's the case that I do have to take RMDs, would I be on the hook for the taxes on the growth? Also, how does the SECURE Act affect this plan, if at all? Does the new 10-year IRA withdrawal rule apply to Roths? Looking forward to your answers. Thanks. Thanks for the question there. It's interesting how much this rule has changed. If you listen to last Wednesday's episode, we talk about the SECURE Act and about changes with the SECURE Act. When it comes to beneficial IRAs, the SECURE Act changes everything, where it used to be that you could stretch it out over your lifetime. Now you have to take withdrawals in a 10-year period. But for the rest of that, Doc, you just went and looked this stuff up. So let's uh, let's go to you, my friend. So the first and most important question is, are they your spouse? Because if the family member is your spouse, that can become your IRA, and then you can just treat it like your own Roth. And if you ha- if you don't know the answer to that question, you've been celebrating National Beer Appreciation Day a little too heartily. So anyway, back to you. So, you know, in the old world, you would have to take RMDs. If it was a Roth, you wouldn't be taxed as long as you were older than a certain age. I think it's 59 and a half. And it had been five years since that family member had opened up the Roth. In the new world, it's completely different. As we were talking about with the SECURE Act, you have 10 years. You can hold it up until 10 years from the death of your loved one, but you have to spend it or take it out by that 10-year anniversary. Yeah. I mean, that totally sucks for those of you in your 20s and 30s. I I hate to bring this up, but I mean, just think before this law passed, you could have held that Roth and let it build and grow until you're 60 or 70 years old and no taxes and just let it go, 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 go. And now you have to drain it all within 10 years. So that, I mean, that's really unfortunate. So, Joe, the real interesting question actually is, is this going to push people to convert more of their money into Roths? So you can convert traditional IRA to Roth if you know your family member is going to be inheriting it and they cannot hold it longer than 10 years. Maybe the tax benefits are such that you want it to be a Roth so they don't get taxed when they take it out. I think generally that's a good strategy. And obviously, the younger you do that, that just makes something that was already a great idea for younger people, even better. Like, you know, you can go to any asset management website and they'll do this crossover point for you of traditional versus Roth. But yeah, another reason for Roth. But I mean, this took the IRA just in general and as a uh, estate planning vehicle, as an estate planning vehicle, 
I think this is how they paid for all the rest of the stuff. It's got to be how they paid for for all the rest of the changes by saying, well, we got to have some way to make this feasible. Let's um, let's tax wealth that's in IRAs. Exactly right. I mean, they always have to do this stuff has to be revenue neutral. Right. And so that's I I think you nailed it. (laughs) Yeah. So does that mean then, Len, that more people not spending enough? That we're gonna we're gonna tax the relatively few. I mean, I don't want that. This is this is this is gonna get into into maybe a political discussion that we don't want to have. But I'm just wondering. You, you know, you look at most of these provisions and why the government does stuff, and you go, okay, here's why they did this. Here's why they did that. But if they did this to make it revenue neutral, you think that that Congress also would like the fact that it would it would tax relatively few people be very few negative votes and a lot of people going, yeah, who cares about them? Yeah, well, that's that's true. I mean, the other thing to take away from this is, look, a loss can always be changed, right? Nothing is sacrosanct ever. So just because you're saying, oh, I mean, they could come back and change the rule and say, uh, Roth IRAs, I know we've, we've already taxed you and we said your earnings and everything won't be taxed down the road. They can just change that on a whim. There's nothing that stops them from doing that. So nothing is ever hundred percent certain ever. That's, what, that's a, back when I was a financial planner. There was a, a CPA that I liked working with and sent a lot of my business owner clients to, and that was her opinion. Like the first six or seven years of the Roth IRA, she's like, the government's going to take this back. Are you kidding me? Yep. So it took her a long time to get on board. And just by the way, case in point, there's only been one time that that's actually, there's been something though, Len reversed without people being grandfathered in. So it's really not something though I'd be super afraid of because there's only um, oil wells in the 1980s under Reagan. All these people that owned these things had it taken out limited partnership, uh, master limited partnership uh, shares. The taxation on those got changed right underneath investors' feet. But besides that, generally there's been a, there is, well, every time. I'll give you one more. I'll give you one more example. Gold. Back in uh, 1934, well, okay, FDR, yes, yes. confiscated it. So, yes. you know that that's a that's another. I mean, it can happen. Stuff like that can happen. Yeah. So. Len, you're on your way to build your bunker even deeper. So we should probably go <laughs> probably go to you first. By the way, if you've got a question, uh, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail to ask us your question. But Len, what's going on at lenpenzo.com? Hey, at lenpenzo.com, I'm featuring 50, the 50 biggest money mistakes that household CEOs make. Believe it or not, you could make 50 mistakes. There's a lot of mistakes you could make, and I've enumerated almost all of them. So stop on by and uh, check it out. <laughs> you play tested them. <laughs> I've, I've lived a few of them. <laughs> Just a few. Doc, what's uh, coming up next on What's Up Next? So this week we released an episode with Rich Jones and Marcus Garrett of Paychecks and Balances about building a ride or die community. It's a really great episode. You should check it out. I I love those guys. Two of my favorite people. Uh, in fact, it's been a while since we've had Rich or Marcus on the show. We got to have them back on our round table. Gwen. Joe. Gwen Mertz. <laughs> <laughs> this week on Fire Millennials, I hope to get a guest post out. And uh, also maybe detail some of the changes that are coming in 2020 with my new job and the fact that I now have the opportunity to get a pension and health care covered in my retirement. You've got some exciting stuff going on. It's always something with me. 
And you went ice skating recently as well. And I went ice skating, and it was not me that fell and broke my hand. <laughs> I swear it wasn't you. And by the way, where can people follow you on social media as well? They can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Fiery Millennial. Yeah, most of them. Because I One saw, because I, I saw you. Instagram is is in Fiery Millennials, and Fiery Millennial is Twitter. I think I don't know if you just type in Gwen and financial independence. All of my stuff will come up. We, 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 we got people covered, Gwen. You know what? We've got it in the show notes, too, at stackingbenjamins.com. There you go. Go but to stackingbenjamins.com for all of the relevant information. That is fantastic. If I had Gwen's voice, I would get rid of mine. Just fantastic. That's going to do it for today. Guys, thank you so much. Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Sure thing, Joe. I'll lend my best announcer voice to this part of the show so that everybody pays attention and finally learns something. The first thing we learned today is watch where your information is coming from. Just because someone is blogging from a point they tell you is independence doesn't mean they don't have a profit motive, and it also doesn't mean that they aren't pushing an agenda that might not be disclosed as much as it should be. Second, Michael Block taught us that there are some nifty ways to crush your student loans. Get working on your strategy sooner rather than later. But the big lesson? Well, it's one thing to crush your student loans. Don't crush those beer cans on your phone. Crushing it might be just a, you know, like a euphemism or something. Special thanks to Gwen Mers from Fiery Millennials for joining us. You'll find Gwen's writing at FieryMillennials.com or to follow her on social media, just check out our show notes page at StackingBenjamins.com. Thanks also to Doc G for joining the fun again. You'll find the What's Up Next podcast wherever you're listening to us here. Len Penzo appears courtesy of LenPenzo.com and all of the darkness and doubt in the world. This show is created by Joe Saul Seahigh, produced by Karen Rapine, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and there's a 73% chance that I played Chuck on Happy Days. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor.
Welcome to the after show. This is the part of the show that doesn't exist. We're actually doing this backwards. Normally, we do the after show last. However, Gwen, who you just heard on the podcast, can't get her damn time zones right. So because of that, Doc and Len and I are having a discussion that old guys have all the time, (laughs) which is how much we used to be able to eat. And how much Doc was just telling us about how you don't you don't value it, and and I totally didn't. Doc, here's the deal: my we had this place in Southwest Michigan called Hot Now, and and Hot Now was the home of the thirty five cent burger, and so we would take two bucks and get six of them, or just over two bucks, and we get six of them, and we down them. And my mom, I remember my mom sitting one time, she was with us, and she, she, we were going to some appointment. I'm like, oh, go to Hot Now. And she's like, no, that's that's disgusting. You could, I'm like, oh, no, it's great. It's fantastic. And we go there, and I get six cheeseburgers and some fries and whatever for $4. And she's staring at me while I'm shoveling this into my mouth, and she's like, I want you to remember this when you're older. <laughs> and, and at the time, I'm like, yeah, whatever. I look at a cheeseburger now and I gain weight. And have you ever watched a teenager eat? They like double fisted. Yes. It's like one hamburger in each hand and they eat so fast. I, I can't even imagine it anymore. <laughs> I want to do that again. Oh, look who's here. <laughs> okay, so apparently I fail at life. Please, 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 please <laughs> emphasize it like eight times in the next email. This is in Eastern time zone. Are you free Eastern time zone? We're in the middle of recording our after show and you're here in the middle of it. So say hi to everybody because we just outed you and your inability to do math with, uh, with geography. Fair. Everyone, <laughs> I apologize from the bottom of my heart for being unable to distinguish between Eastern and Central time zones. Yeah, if it's not 4% or 25 times, the math gets a little fuzzy. And we won't talk about daylight savings time or, uh, or oh. standard time. Oh, you just made Gwen's head explode. <laughs> R.I.P. Gwen. With, with, with that one. So uh, anyway, that's our after show. Let's go make a show that you guys already heard. Uh, by the way, Doc, I forgot to ask you, what's going on at the What's Up Next podcast, man? So it's been a busy few weeks. As you know, we announced that the What's Up Next podcast has become part of the stacking bag. And I lost your audio. Uh, it's like the internet does not want you to be affiliated with us. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the internet that's keeps... twice. You and, I, you and I, Joe, that's twice we've been cut off when we try to say something. The internet keeps giving us warnings. Like, you shouldn't right. do this. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend OG, who spent time in the military. Of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. 
take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.